Oh, Father, please use this time as we study your word. Please use this time to refine us and to show us how offensive to you and how corrupt the works of the flesh are. Not just so that we can have head knowledge, Father, but please, by the power of your Spirit, help us to understand how to apply this to our lives. Help us to understand your purposes in our lives more fully as we read your word today for the glory and the honor of Christ. Amen. I know that some of you today, maybe not today, maybe just in the past year, are going through some crazy trials. I know that some of you are going through some crazy ups and downs in life. And maybe you're wondering, where's my joy? And where's my peace? Because aren't I supposed to have these things? The truth is that life is filled with ups and downs, with, with good times and with bad times. And that's part of the human experience. And nobody is immune from these things. Nobody is immune from ups and downs, not even, not even Christians. Even Christians who have walked with the Lord for 30 or 40 or, or 50 or more years are prone to find themselves going through trials, going through the ups and downs of life. The Christian life is one of, of many hills and valleys. It's not a plateau. If only it were, we think, in our flesh. No, the Christian life is one of many hills and valleys, and a lot of our time is spent walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And one of the most common reasons that people will walk away from the faith, maybe for a season, maybe for good, is because they came into the faith with an expectation that things would be easy, that things would be different, that God wouldn't let any trials or hardship or difficulties come their way. Maybe they originally came into the faith expecting peace in their life, but they discovered that the Christian life often involves very, very intense conflicts. Maybe they originally came to him thinking that it would be a good business move to put Jesus in their back pockets until the stock market crashed. And so you might be asking, wait a minute, isn't the Christian life supposed to be filled with peace and joy and hope? Yes, it is. Yes, it absolutely is. But at the same time, we shouldn't be so foolish as to think that peace means the complete lack of conflict. What it means is we've been brought into peace with God. We have peace with God. That doesn't mean that there's no conflict in any other aspect of our lives. We also shouldn't think that joy is the same thing as happiness by a worldly understanding. There is great joy in knowing that God has saved us from the penalty of sin. There is great peace in knowing that God is now saving us currently from the power of sin, from the grip that sin has in our lives. And there's great hope in knowing that there will be a day 
when God will remove us from the presence of sin completely. But for now, until the day when God calls us home or Christ returns, we will struggle to trudge onward through the hills and deep, deep valleys of the Christian life. The purpose of the Christian life, we have to understand, is not about us. It's not centered on us. It is centered in God, His purposes, His promises, and His glory. We've been chosen by God for the sake of bearing fruit. That's our purpose. Bearing fruit and thereby glorifying God. And so with that in mind, let's also remember that Jesus, on the night of His betrayal, in the 15th chapter of John, He teaches His disciples this. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Now, if bearing fruit is central to the Christian life, and it is, then so is being pruned. And so you might be asking, well, what does that mean? What does it even mean to be pruned? It's another word for discipline, in a sense. It means that God, in His sovereign, omniscient, and omnipotent wisdom, will separate us. He will work to trim from our lives all the things that do not honor or glorify Him. He prunes away the parts of our lives which would hinder us from bearing more fruit. We're supposed to bear fruit, that's our purpose, and bear more fruit by God's work in us. We are His workmanship. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, we're His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which who prepared beforehand? Which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And the truth is that were it not for the work of God preparing the way for us beforehand, the baggage that we bring into our relationship with the Lord would prevent us from doing anything pleasing to the Lord at all. And we've got tons of baggage, every single one of us. Now what we would call baggage maybe, the Bible calls flesh. Flesh. It's the prideful, self-centered, narcissistic, egotistical part of us that resists and opposes the work of the Spirit within us. Paul said of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5, verse 17, he said, the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. And this is something that every last one of us Every Christian throughout history will wrestle against throughout our Christian walk. The only reason we do anything at all that's good or acceptable to God is because of His grace working within us. And that doesn't mean that those who are unregenerate or unsaved or who are living by the flesh are incapable of doing things that are of no benefit or that aren't uh, outwardly good in some sense. For example, uh, somebody who's unsaved can give to the poor. You know, there's no question about that. And we would say that that is beneficial. It's beneficial to the person, perhaps. Uh, It's also beneficial to society as a whole. But the deeds of the flesh are so thoroughly corrupted by the, by, the, by the effects of sin 
that even the best things that we do are corrupted. The truth is that if your best deeds flow from the flesh, they are an offense to God because they feed your pride. They feed your ego. They give you a sense of of goodness and security about yourself. And therefore, they lessen your sense of need or desire or dependence on Christ. And so we must put to work, we must put to death the works of the flesh. No matter how good they might make us feel, no matter how good they might make us look in the eyes of others. And the reason is so that we may more fully trust in God. And this is the central point of our passage today. If you have your Bible with you, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 21. We're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 21, verses 1 to 18. And in this passage, we're going to see Abraham go through both a valley and a, and a hill. Abraham will, will experience the, the joy of life. God's promise unto him will be fulfilled. But he'll also experience the excruciating pain of loss. But it starts on a hill. It starts on a high point, which is really good news. It's about time, because if you look at the text and what's led us to this point, the past 89 verses have been one valley after another, after another, after another, but who's counting? 89. The darkness of the preceding verses and chapters started with these two angels who were with the Lord and came to dine with Abraham before going to judge Sodom. But while they dined, if you remember, Sarah overheard the promise that in about a year's time, she would be with child. And so, we have to understand, this is a year after that. That was back in uh, chapter 18. This is a year later. So we start with verses 1 to 7. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. It says, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. So we're starting out on a a high point after a lot of low points. The passage marks a startling change of direction, a startling change of momentum. The text has been extremely dark, extremely grim for a very long time. First, Sarah gets rebuked by the Lord for laughing at his promise, even though she only laughed to herself. The Lord heard it and scorned her for it. He rebuked her for it. Then the angels judged Sodom, rescuing Lot against his will. Then we saw the disobedience of Lot's wife who looked back and was instantly judged by God. Then we saw the episode with Lot and his two daughters in a bottle of wine in a cave, followed by Abraham falling back into this old, old pattern of sin that had plagued him since he was first called by God to follow the Lord. This has been one of the grimmest and one of the darkest stretches of Scripture in the entire Bible. 
But now, the Lord has done what the Lord has been promising for so many years to do. For 25 plus years, He's been promising this, and now He does it. He's given Abraham and Sarah a child now that they are well beyond their childbearing years. They are way too old to be having kids. And if you are, in, uh, are beyond your 30s and you've thought about, you know, looked back and seen, you know, thought about the, the, the energy that was required to take care of a kid, you're glad you did it when you were young. You're glad that you had kids when you were young. But here they are. They're way too old to be having kids and the promise is fulfilled. They have a child by the work of God. Even though Abraham had struggled to trust in God. And even though Sarah had struggled to believe in God, to believe in God's promises, God was nevertheless faithful to what He promised to do. His faithfulness wasn't contingent upon their faithfulness. He was faithful because He promised to do it. Sarah's first laughter, the mocking laughter that she was rebuked for a few chapters back, was an unbelieving laughter, but now she's laughing again. And this is a joyful and believing laugh. And Abraham's heart was, no question about it, his heart had to be just overflowing with joy as well. We're immediately shown that he is completely obedient to the Lord. A, a great contrast from the previous chapter where he wasn't. But he was brought back into right standing with the Lord. He repented. And he gives his son the name that God had instructed him to give his son, Isaac, which, by the way, means laughter. And he circumcises Isaac on the eighth day after his birth. But it's really Sarah who's the most vocal with her rejoicing. She's the one who, who says all these things. Abraham's the one doing all these things. He's obeying. They're both, they're both obeying. They're both rejoicing over the Lord. It's a time of, of great joy for both of them. They had waited so long for this promise to be, to be fulfilled. And because it was fulfilled in a way and with timing that completely defied any and every expectation of God that they might have had, all they could do was laugh and rejoice. The idea of a 100-year-old man and an 89-year-old woman having a child is absolutely ridiculous. It's hilarious. It might seem impossible and it is impossible in the flesh. But it wasn't impossible for God. They had struggled to believe after so many years, but the joke was really on them when they realized how foolish, how presumptuous it was to doubt God's ability to do what was impossible for man. All they can do is rejoice and laugh. Now there are three primary lessons that we can learn and that they learned in these seven verses. Three primary lessons. Number one, God is faithful to His promises. If God says He's going to do it, He's going to do it. Abraham and Sarah learned that lesson after many, many years. You and I need to learn that one too. God is faithful to what He says He's going to do or conversely to what He promises that He's not going to do. Numbers chapter 23, verse 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will not do it, or has he spoken and will not fulfill it? God is faithful to what he promises that he's going to do. If he says he's going to do it, he's going to do it. If he says he's not going to do it, he's not going to do it. Think about it. He, he promised Noah that he would never flood the earth again. And how many, in, in our day and age, how many thousands and thousands of years ago was that? 
And for thousands and thousands of years, God has been faithful to that promise. God promised to bless Abraham with a descendant. And now we've seen God prove to be faithful to that promise. God promised in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, to send a Savior. He was faithful to fulfill that promise. After thousands of years. You think it was a long time to wait? 25 years, Abraham? Yeah, people were waiting thousands of years for the fulfillment of the promise of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Moving forward through the rest of Scripture, obviously it's not going to be possible to even come close to touching on every promise that God makes throughout Scripture. There are way too many, but we should remember in Psalm chapter, uh, Psalm chapter 1 that those who delight themselves in the Word of the Lord are blessed. Perhaps the most important promise of all is that God promises salvation to all who will repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. To those who are chosen, according to His sovereign purposes, He promises that He is causing all things to work together to grow them in the likeness of Christ. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. To His people, He keeps an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven, according to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. These are great promises to keep in mind. Anchor verses to, to cling to when you're going through valleys. So Abraham and Sarah learned that God is faithful to His purposes. If He says He's going to do it, if He makes a promise, He's going to fulfill it. That's the first thing they learned. And the first thing we should learn from this text. Number two, Abraham and Sarah learned that nothing is impossible for God. What seems impossible for man is not impossible for God. As you look at this passage, you see a theme that gets repeated just in these seven verses. And the theme that you see over and over again is the age that Abraham and Sarah are at this point. By human means, this never, ever could have happened. Now maybe you look at this passage and you think about it and you think to yourself, well, that, that turned out pretty well for, for Abraham and, and Sarah, but I, I don't think God could do the same thing for me. Maybe you're facing something that seems impossible to deal with as well. Maybe you are in a valley wondering if God is even capable of seeing you through. Maybe you're facing a divorce. Maybe you're facing the unfaithfulness of a spouse. Maybe you've been diagnosed with a disease that you know is eventually going to take your life. Whatever you're facing, let me ask you this. First of all, do you, do you believe that God even knows about your circumstances? Do you believe that He's aware of the fact that you are in the depths of a valley? Of course He does. Of course He does. Do you believe that He's sovereign? Do you believe that He's sovereign over every situation you're in? Yeah, Romans 8.28, He is. He is sovereign over it all. So do you believe that whatever valley you're in, whatever circumstances you're facing, do you believe that God is using them to grow you in the likeness of Christ in a way that you would not learn on a hilltop. So when you're weak, when you're tired, when you're frustrated, remember this. Remember that nothing is impossible to, for God. Nothing is impossible for Him. 
He's aware of your situation. He's sovereign over your situation. And He's using your situation to grow you in the likeness of Christ. And it's not impossible. It would be impossible for you by the power of your flesh to do it. But God is using your situation to that end. And it will feel, perhaps, while you're in a valley, like He can't possibly accomplish anything through you. But He will accomplish every purpose that He has ordained to accomplish in your life. And trust that while He might not fix your situation the way you would if you were God, or the way that you expect God to do it, He will give you the grace. He will give you the strength even if it's just sometimes step by step. Like a drip rather than a fountain. We'd love to have a fountain of grace in the valleys, but sometimes it's just a drip. But what God has prepared from eternity past to do with you, He will make sure that it is accomplished. So Abraham and Sarah first learned that God is faithful to His promises. Secondly, they learned that nothing is impossible for God. Third, they learned that God is not in a hurry. God is not in a hurry. You might feel like He should be, and when you're in a valley, you almost always do feel like God needs to hurry up and do something. But God is never in a hurry. Abraham and Sarah had to be thinking to themselves at this point, man, God, God better hurry up. Uh, because our, our, the end of our childbearing years are coming up here, so God had better act pretty quick here. And before you knew it, their childbearing years were long behind them. And it was all according to plan. It was all the way God designed it to work out in His perfect timing. Maybe you've prayed for something. Maybe you've asked for something. Maybe you've trusted in God for something. Maybe you're facing something so big, so intimidating that it just makes you feel frustrated to feel like God isn't doing anything to step in and do something about it. But God wants us to trust. It is easy to trust on hilltops. It is not easy to trust in valleys. But your faith will be stretched and grown in a valley like it can't be on a hill. God wants us to trust. He wants our faith to grow. There's no sense in doubting the timing or the ability of an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-wise, all-sovereign God. His timing is always perfect. And if you're wondering why God would make you wait, you can know that at least part of the answer is because He wants your faith to grow. He wants you to learn to trust Him more and to trust yourself, to trust your understanding, your flesh, less. So He does things in a way and He does things in time that brings Him the glory which is all rightfully His. And for that, hap- for that to happen, you need to come to the end of the confidence that you have in the flesh. You need to come to the end of the confidence that you have in yourself. Have you been there? Have you been to that point where you've learned not to trust yourself so much, but just to trust the Lord? Have you ever had something humble you? A failure? A sin? It can be anything. Have you thought about how God might be using your circumstances in those situations to make you depend less on yourself and more on Him? Because you can't have it both ways. 
The more you trust in yourself, the less you trust in God. It's a theological seesaw. One goes up, one goes down. Abraham had to learn this lesson the hard way. And he did. He had tried to take matters into his own hands. He tried to do things by his own understanding. He tried to do things by his natural ability. And that was his spiritual Achilles heel, so to speak. Sarah, to an extent, had kind of the same struggle. So when she suggested that Abraham conceive a child with her slave, Hagar, Abraham jumped on that train as fast as he could. Working in the, in, in the, in the flesh rather than in the spirit. And Ishmael was conceived. Ishmael represented Abraham's failure to trust God completely. Abraham should have trusted God, but instead he took matters into his own hands. Ishmael was conceived. So Ishmael represents Abraham's failure to trust God as completely as he should have. Ishmael represented Abraham's efforts, works, deeds of the flesh. And we have to understand that if we're going to make any sense of the text that's coming next. The sin of Abraham from 15 or 16 years prior to this would eventually cause enormous problems. So we continue, verses 8 to 14. We read, And the child grew, speaking about Isaac, And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took the bread, took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. So Moses, Moses is the author of the book of Genesis. Moses kind of hits the fast forward button here, bringing us to the point at which Isaac was weaned. In in just one verse, just verse 8. He's hitting the fast forward button. button. So how old is Isaac at this point when he's weaned? Eh, Probably two or three, somewhere in there. But the focus isn't really on him here, is it? Isn't that odd? Because we've been waiting for 25 years, or a few chapters, 10 chapters, for this promise to be fulfilled, and the focus isn't on Isaac. No, the focus is on Ishmael. His reaction to Isaac getting a good amount of attention. It's a reaction that's caused by deep resentment, deep jealousy. And so at this point, Ishmael is 15 or 16 years old. This is 15 or 16 years after he was born. He's a man, more or less, at least according to their culture standards. He's, he's as much a son of Abraham as Isaac is. And so there's no question that when Abraham throws a feast to celebrate the weaning of, of Isaac, 
Ishmael is invited. He's invited to be there. And in the middle of all these joyful festivities, Sarah looks over and she sees Ishmael laughing at Isaac. Laughing at him in a mocking way. And suddenly, all the pain, all the bitterness, all the envy, jealousy, and strife that she had felt toward Hagar and that she had felt toward Ishmael for all these years, it all comes to the surface. It all comes to a boiling point. And at this point, I mean, her her emotions are, are off the charts. They're boiling over. And she responds in a way that maybe we can't entirely blame her for, but at the same time, we can't commend her for either. We, we can say this wasn't the most gracious way for Sarah to respond. Her emotions are heated, and it brings her to the point where she draws an ultimatum with Abraham. She tells him to send Ishmael and his mama packing. And she uses a word that's translated cast out. The word indicates extreme force. Drive them out. Thrust them out. It's forceful. It's urgent. And if we're being honest with the text here, we can admit that this is just downright cruel to send them into the wilderness. How can she actually do that? Not only to these two human beings, not only to Hagar and Ishmael, how can she do this to Abraham? Who undoubtedly loves Ishmael. It's his son. Of course he loves Ishmael. We probably can't even help but imagine that this this had to be the most painful thing, the most painfully difficult thing that Abraham has had to do at this point in his entire life. Of course, the Lord would require something even more painfully difficult for him with Isaac later on. We're going to come to that. But at this point, Abraham is in the most difficult position he's ever been in in his life. He's between a rock and a hard place. He, he loves Sarah. Of course he loves Sarah. But he also loves his son. And his sin from years later has a consequence at this point. He's put in a situation where he has to lose someone that he loves deeply. The text doesn't exactly reveal the depth of Abraham's grief or his pain, but we know that there's no way around it. This is a a, a deeply painful situation. I imagine that where it says that uh, this was a very displeasing situation to Abraham, that's just kind of a euphemism for Abraham was completely heartbroken. I mean, you can have all the trust in the world in God, but that won't nullify the love that a father has for his son. I can't imagine that Abraham would have been able to do this with dry eyes. I have to think that as as he prepares this bread and, and water for Hagar and Ishmael, he's got tears running down his beard. We can maybe understand why Sarah was so grieved. Someone might say, you know, that's, it's understandable that she would feel that way. Maybe it is. But what, what might not be so easy to understand is why God takes Sarah's side here. Why does God tell Abraham to do what Sarah has instructed him to do? There's a deep, very deep lesson for us here, friends. 
We have to understand that while this is a literal story, this is something that historically took place exactly as it tells us. And yet at the same time, it's also deeply, deeply symbolic. And we wouldn't even realize how symbolic it is. We wouldn't even realize maybe what the application is or how deeply meaningful for our lives this is were it not for the Apostle Paul referring back to it, pointing back to it as he was writing his letter to the Galatians. If you remember the the Galatians, they'd been converted under Paul's preaching. They heard, they received, they believed the gospel that Paul had heralded and preached in their midst. And yet, not long after he left town, some Judaizers came in, teaching the Galatians that they must fulfill the requirements of the law. They must, including, they must be circumcised. And that's why Paul writes to the Galatians. That's why it's a, it's a fierce opening. There's no other letter that Paul writes where he's so mad at the get-go. The entire letter is Paul arguing, making the argument that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and that it is not by works. And so he refers to Abraham extensively in Galatians, showing that salvation has never, ever, ever been through the works of the flesh. In Galatians chapter 3 and 4, Paul goes back and forth, back and forth, showing the benefits of, of living by faith and contrasting that with trying to fulfill the requirements of the law apart from faith. And the finishing blow, the finishing blow is, is, is Paul pointing back to Abraham, Isaac, and Ishmael. And so we read this in Galatians chapter 4. Verses 21 to 31. Paul says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen or do you not do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband." Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman." Do you see why Paul points back? Do you see the point that he's trying to make? The point that he's trying to make here is that we're to identify with the free woman and the promise of God rather than identifying, as the Judaizers did, with the slave woman and the son who represents the works of the flesh. So we see just a ton of, of contrast in these verses. Paul contrasts Sarah with Hagar, Isaac with Ishmael, the old covenant with the new covenant, salvation by works 
with salvation by grace. Deeds of the Spirit versus deeds of the flesh. The old Jerusalem with the new Jerusalem. And, and all of these contrasts are designed, they're strategically designed to bring us to one all-surpassing conclusion. We must live by the promise. And to do that, we must turn from the works of the flesh and live by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ, our promise alone, to the glory of God alone. We must put to death the deeds, the works, the effort of the flesh. No matter how good they might look to other people, no matter how good they might make you feel about yourself, also that we may trust more fully in God. And that's not to say that we should just be entirely passive. Abraham wasn't passive. Abraham was active. He was actively obedient. But he wasn't trusting in his obedience for salvation. Isaac's birth was the fulfillment of God's promise. But it was also the birth of a conflict, a painful conflict. It's a picture of this conflict that every Christian experiences as well experiences as well. And that is the conflict between the Spirit and the flesh. The works of the flesh bring glory to the individual. The works of the Spirit bring glory to God. In the case of the Judaizers, their, their works of the flesh, especially circumcision, were a false righteousness that they gloried in. They claimed, we're sons of Abraham. Jesus dealt with them. He said, no, you're not. If you were sons of Abraham, you'd have the faith that Abraham had. They claimed to be sons of Abraham, but let us not forget that Ishmael was also a son of Abraham. The Christian life is filled with internal conflict because the flesh and the Spirit are at odds with one another. Galatians 5.17, the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. The flesh seeks to fuel our our pride, our ego, our self-esteem. The Spirit seeks to humble us in order that we would submit ourselves more fully to trusting in the Lord. And the only way to resolve this conflict is to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Put to death the things that feed our pride, our ego, our self-esteem. All these things need to go. They hinder our growth in Christ. They hinder our growth in Christ's likeness. They hinder us from bearing more fruit. And so God in His sovereign, omnipotent wisdom works as a vine dresser to prune to prune the works of the flesh to prune to take away to remove us from the things that glorify or exalt you all in order that you would bear more fruit now what does that look like on a practical level Good question, because everybody is different. But at the very least, it involves seeking to submit ourselves more fully to God by denying ourselves. It means submitting ourselves more and more fully to His will, seeking to live a life that is pleasing to Him rather than seeking to live a life that gives ourselves pleasure or brings ourselves glory. It means casting off 
throwing away, separating ourselves from anything that stands in the way of total and complete submission to God, all in order that we would grow our faith, grow in our trust for Him, and trust less in ourselves. And i got to say, having been there a couple times myself, that pruning is painful. It can be really painful. There will be sins that, that you love that you must do away with. And sometimes painful isn't even the right word. Sometimes it's absolutely excruciating. And many times you won't even understand why God wants you to do it. But your part isn't always to understand. There will be times when you don't understand. Well, your part is just to obey. Your part is to submit yourself to the Lord. That's what faith does. You must put to death the deeds of the flesh, no matter how good they make you look to others, no matter how good they might make you feel about yourself, so that God can accomplish His purposes in you, and so that you may learn to trust more fully in God and less in yourself. If you are in Christ Jesus, you will have this war taking place within you every single day for the rest of your life until the day that you stand before the Lord in glory. You will never reach a point in this life where God might look at you and say, he's fully pruned. Oh, she, she can't, she, she's bearing as much fruit as she could ever possibly bear, so I, I'm just hands off. There will never come a point where God looks at you and says that or thinks that. No, God's so different from us. So above and beyond us. We are an infinity away from Him. We will never get there in this life. We will never reach sinless perfection in this life. There will always be places where we can be pruned. And God's purpose in pruning us is in order that we would bear fruit and bear more fruit. Growing us in Christ's likeness. And you can't do that without being pruned. You can't do that without learning to cast away the deeds of the flesh. You must forsake every effort to please God by the works of the flesh. You must look to the works of Christ on your behalf and receive His righteousness instead. See, in the flesh, we have this assumption that God looks at us through what we give to Him, what we do for Him, when actually it's the opposite. We, we assume that if we work hard enough, we assume that if we, if we do enough really good things, God will see us in light of all those things and He'll be pleased with, it, with us. Think about it. That's, that's exactly what Cain did. That's, what, that's why Cain was so mad. He, he wanted to offer something to God, and so when God rejected what he had offered, Cain himself felt dejected. Why? Because he thought that God would see him through the lens of his offering. And in the flesh, that's the way we think it works. We think if we just do something good for God, or if we just give something big to God, He'll be pleased. But the truth is, it's just the opposite. God doesn't look at you through the lens of your good works or your offerings. Rather, He sees your good works and He sees your offerings through the lens of your faith. That's what He's looking at. He's looking at your heart. 
He's looking at your faith. Hebrews tells us that that's the only thing that pleases God and that it's impossible to please God without faith. Oh, but man, that doesn't do anything for our ego, does it? That doesn't do anything to fuel our our sense of pride. Exactly. And the truth is that the flesh will even try to hang on, even trying to take credit for having faith. But you can't take credit for the fact that you have faith. Faith is a gift. Faith is is a gift. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. What do you think it means that He's the author? He's the one who starts it. He's the one who gives it to you. So you can't even boast in the fact that you have faith. The flesh wants to hold on to that. But you can't. So put the tendency of the flesh to take credit for anything, including faith, to death. Put every desire, every impulse of the flesh to death. Now, this was undoubtedly, just unthinkably painful for Abraham to cast his firstborn son away. But we must commend him for not hesitating to submit to the will of God. He may not have fully understood God's purposes. I'm I'm sure he didn't. He He may not have understood them at all, but he nevertheless did exactly what God asked of him, just as he would later on with Isaac. So our passage concludes with the parting of Hagar and Ishmael. Let's look at this real quick. Verses 15 to 18. And when the water in the skin was gone, she, Hagar, put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot, For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy, and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation." God is a faithful Father who is growing His children in His likeness, in the likeness of Christ. And that'll mean going through valleys. And sometimes it will be painful. But what we see here is that even though it's painful to put the deeds of the flesh to death, God does it with grace. And God is compassionate. Abraham feared what would happen to his son, we can be sure, but God assured Abraham the same thing that he assures Hagar in verse, verse 13 and verse 18, that Ishmael would be fine, that God would make a nation from him. So when Ishmael had a need and Hagar reaches the end of her ability to provide for Ishmael, God steps in and provides. Isn't it interesting that Hagar is the one crying out to God, but God says, I heard the voice of the boy. Hagar had to learn how limited she was in the flesh too, perhaps. But as soon as she did, God stepped in and God provided. Friends, the Christian life is filled with peace and joy. But it's also a landscape filled with hills and valleys. 
And I know for a fact that some of you are going through excruciating trials right now. I know that for a fact. And some of you know that I'm kind of coming out of one myself. We almost lost Christina. Christina almost died. While you may not understand what God is trying to accomplish in the valley, you must understand why he takes us through trials. To prune us. To grow us. To make us learn the impossibly hard lesson, impossible in the flesh, that we must trust more in God and less of ourselves. So specifically, how will you apply this passage to your life? I can't say. I mean, we've got how many people here today, and there are going to be thousands of people who listen online, and everybody is different. So I can't say specifically how it would apply to your life. But what I can say is that each one of us must seek God's will in this matter, and we must put to death the deeds of the flesh that hinder us from bearing more fruit. What does the Lord lay on your heart right now? As you consider the application of this passage, what needs to go in your life? What needs to change in your life? What would God have you do so that you would submit yourself more fully to Him? What would that look like in your life? Fear the Lord. Fear the Lord and keep learning to walk in humble, submissive obedience to Him. Trusting in the work of Christ that was accomplished on behalf of everyone who will repent and believe in Him. And in the end, you'll find that all the trials, all the pain, all the valleys were all sovereignly ordained for your good. You might not see it now, but you will. You'll see that all these things were ordained by God Himself from eternity as a means of you finding peace and you finding joy in seeing God do things in your life that you could not do apart from Him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You that You are all-powerful, all-knowing, sovereign, infinitely wise, and that You love us enough to wean us from the things that prevent us from bearing more fruit. Father, our desire is to live a life that's glorifying to Your Son, Jesus Christ. And we confess to You that each of us has sins that hinder that to a large extent and that were it not for Your grace, we would bear no, no fruit at all. And so we thank You for Your grace. We thank You that we do bear fruit for the glory of Christ. And we pray, Lord, that You would give us grace in the valleys. Give us grace in the trials that we would be able to trudge forward, trusting more in You and less in ourselves, knowing that Your promises will be fulfilled and that You will grow us in the likeness of Christ that He would be glorified in us. 
So give us grace, Father, to deal with difficult times and to trust more in you. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.